Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, I've been in finance for close to 20 years, including a pretty long stint, more than a decade in the hedge fund industry. And, you know, during that time, I, I met people and have made friends who are worth not only eight figures, not only nine figures, but are billionaires, you know, and, and, and rel relatively young people. And to be able to witness the lifestyle and the choices that people at that level of wealth make, um, I've learned some things. And at the way other end of the spectrum, let's not lose sight of the fact that the average family of four in America lives on about $57,000 a year, and that there are plenty of families and children who go hungry every night in America, which I find pretty infuriating and has motivated a lot of the charitable um, uh, enterprises that my family and I are in, uh, involved with. So you, you've got this very broad spectrum. And so as I sort of think about my own levels of happiness, the right ways in which to raise my children, and then finally the right ways in which to be a citizen, when I can know somebody who's making very, very little, but also have a friend across town or you know across the world who's got five or $700 million in the bank, and appreciate that the the person with half a billion dollars has good days and bad, bad moods and good moods. Um, and meanwhile, the person who's not living on much can be very cheerful and find great enjoyment in what they're doing on a daily basis and, and find real meaning through a variety of things in life. I, I felt like it was an obligation to myself and then to my family and then to society to kind of articulate what all of this added up to. And, and that really was the, the impetus, impetus for the book and, and the first you know, couple chapters of the book kind of frame that you know, precisely, I think. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Brian, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I uh, came across your work by way of your publisher who sent you, me your book, The Geometry of Wealth, um, which I, I really appreciated because it was such a different perspective uh, than a number of the different finance books that I had read. But before we get into all that, I want to start with what I feel is a very relevant question to the subject. Uh, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? My dad was an attorney. A straightforward kind of street lawyer, um, practiced law until just last year. So practiced for 45 years or so. And my mother was a traditional housewife. I grew up in, um, I was born in the late sixties, grew up in suburban Pittsburgh in the seventies and eighties. And, um, you know, from a money perspective, I can't say there are actually any positive lessons. Um, my folks got divorced when I was relatively early of the various things that they fought about. Money was probably at the top of the list. Not that we were in great want of money, but it just became a, a lightning rod for a lot of other stuff that was happening. Um, so early memories ranged from none to bad. And it's not like there was ever a moment at any point in my life where 
either parent sat me down and said, hey, son, this is the way you should think about saving or investing or 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 anything like that, you know, flipping the script a couple, three decades later that they came to me for that sort of advice. So, you know, those memories um, uh, of money and wealth, not particularly good, which didn't immediately motivate me to sort of go out and and, and figure this out and, and make this the horse that I wanted to ride on. Yeah. It just it's something that's been in the back of my head for 40, you know, 40 plus years now. That along the way, um, as I've tried to figure it out, it's certainly kind of forced me or given me the opportunity to rethink some things from uh, from the Wayback Machine. Yeah. What if you were to, to sum up the narrative that you were raised with around money, what do you think uh, yours was? That it was um, a form of an advantage over somebody else, that somebody had money and somebody didn't. And that it created um, uneven uh, power relationships within a family context. So it was a point of leverage. Um, it was a source of argumentation. Uh, th- that's you know that that's the sort of ongoing narrative that I sort of witnessed as a, a young boy into my teenage years until you know those conversations stopped happen- happening in front of me. Mm-hmm. How how did you go about changing that narrative? And more importantly, how do other people go about changing theirs? Because one of the things that I find from everybody that I've talked to is that the story they tell themselves about money and the psychology that they have around it has a huge impact on how it shows up in their adult lives. So I'd say in the first, you know, so left uh, left Pittsburgh for college at age 18, uh, college, and then a little bit of work in politics, and then graduate school. I'd say that um, I was not in any way thoughtful about money for a long time. It just wasn't something that I thought about. Uh, I guess I could uh, analyze myself and say, hey, it was just a sensitive topic that I wanted to avoid, but. Whatever it was, you know, went to college, um, uh, worked in Washington, D.C. in politics for a couple years, you know, living on kind of Hill intern type type salary. So certainly not getting ahead and then decided I wanted to go to graduate school was sort of frying pan into the fire in terms of having no money. So for me, it was about just sort of getting by, paying the bills uh, getting fellowships and scholarships, uh, working some jobs, asking my dad for for money every now and then, uh, along the way, and and I'll call it it's, it's really an accident. It's not something that's deliberate. It is that when I was in graduate school and I did a doctorate in political science at the University of Chicago, it was very interdisciplinary. So I was in the political science department, but I studied economics and business. Uh, law, sociology, politics, just sort of the, you know, the Chicago way. And so I became pretty fascinated by capitalism as a social institution. And and I I wouldn't at the time have thought about that at all in terms of money. But, you know, I did just as a practitioner and as a teacher and lecturer and student become really deeply fascinated and invested uh, in this idea that the world works in a certain way or or it doesn't. So that's what I generally the topic of my dissertation and the classes I was teaching at the time. And so um, when I decided to leave academia, because generally I wasn't enjoying the career, which is a di- different, different topic, um, I ended up at a firm called Morningstar that does in- investment research. And I don't think it was because I had some deep passion uh, for investing. Uh, it certainly in no conscious way was 
um, me saying to myself, you know, boy, I had some crap going on 20 years ago and I really want to sort through that now. Like none of that was, none of that was really relevant. I, I just found the markets quite fascinating. And then starting then, and that was in the year 2000, I, um, you know, I was I was able to to dive into money more broadly defined, and and over the last eighteen years or so, have had lots and lots of different types of perspectives because the the ecosystem of money globally is fascinating and complex and controversial, and so I've been again I think more by luck than anything else I've had the opportunity to sit in a number of different feet and sort of figure out, you know how all of the dots are connected, how the how the leg bones connected to the hip bone. So I, I've sort of taught myself a lot along the way, and then just to put a bookend on this answer. Now that I have kids, three kids, uh, currently age 15, 14, and 11, I have certainly explicitly thought about, and my my wife has too, about well, how do we want to talk to them about money, and not just in the practitioner sense, but in the psychology of money. Because the psychology of money is the really hard part. It's really easy to say save more than you spend or, you know, set up a budget or, you know, install Quicken and, and keep keep close track of, uh, of your finances. That that's all in the weed stuff. And it's 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 um, it's it's necessary, but it is in no way sufficient to really coming to terms with where money broadly um, as a as a cultural cultural and psychological and even sociological force kind of figures into your in, into your life. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so many questions come from this. So you mentioned yep. the idea of capitalism as a social system that largely has, has dominated our lives for the, the better part of several hundred years. Uh, and this is, is fresh on my mind for a couple of reasons. One, I'm reading a book called The World of Three Zeros by Mohamed Nudis, the, the founder of the Grameen Bank. Uh, I've been watching these bizarre documentaries about the Venus Project. Given the fact that you've worked in politics, um, you also have an in-depth knowledge about finance. In your view, is, is capitalism going to be our long-term sustainable uh, social and economic system for how we continue as a species? Uh, or do you see it, see it being replaced by something else? Everything is always replaced. Uh, that, to me, is one of the fascinating parts of history and sociology and politics is that we're always dealing with evolution and adaptation um, in, in a social sense, you know, le leaving aside the, the, the natural world, which has its own processes. But um, one of the, I think, general mistakes that we make in thinking about markets and even thinking about money in our in our day to day lives is that we borrow um, we, we borrow mental models from physics when we should be borrowing uh, mental models from biology. And what do I mean by that? So in, in physics, we, we have very precise answers, you know, out to the 10th or 20th or 100th decimal place where we know the, um, the trajectory of objects in motion and we can calculate these things with, with an un, unbelievable level of detail. Uh, and, and, and accuracy. Uh, the way modern economics has developed and, and the way that's kind of creeped into uh, investing and even personal finance is that there's sort of a, a, a right answer for the questions that we're asking at both the macro societal level and at the micro individual level. The reason why biology uh, tends to be, I think, a better, um, a, a better mental model is that it it, it allows for a more adaptive mindset because we can certainly take probabilistic guesses at the trajectory of things, but we're not going to get things exactly right. But one of the lessons is that we don't 
we don't really need to. And, and maybe we can get into that from a you know, micro level investment decision point of view on the question of capitalism. You know, the the, the big problem uh, is that it, it seems to be most people's answer, but they don't really know what the question is. The, the real question with capitalism alongside many other institutions, small I institutions, which is a very generic phenomenon, is h- how do we organize society? How, how, how do we construct a world where um, people get along and there is growth and there is prosperity? OK, so that's there's other ways to frame the question, but that's that that's one of them. And what we've seen uh, through kind of the you know, what I'll call and what I feel like I studied, even though I didn't call it at this time, the sociology of capitalism, but it's still something I think about just about every day now, is that the different institutions that exist, social institutions that exist are all there through some evolutionary process in order to solve a social coordination problem. And modern, uh, we'll just talk about modern, modern capital markets, stock market and bond market. That, that's one particular answer to how we can uh, transact with each other. And that we'll get into today. But one of the fascinating things about not so much cryptocurrency, but blockchain is that it's actually an alternative set of social institutions, given the nature of technology today. But aside from um, capitalism, uh, and, and which a lot of people would just say shorthand, hey, that that's the market. There are other things that organize our lives. There's um, uh, there's private institutions like the family. Uh, the family as it currently exists, what we would call the nuclear family, doesn't necessarily um, didn't necessarily exist in the exact same format that it did centuries ago. Um, uh, there's also the state or government. And so if you go back a few hundred years, starting with Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan, and, and then you move into Adam Smith and, and, and Mill and Marx and all of these fascinating guys, they're, they're debating the right way to organizing, organizing society. And, and the tug and pull is really between states and markets or you know, central authority and markets. So I, I could go on and on about this, but to you know, sort of tie a bow around, is capitalism here to stay? Um, th- I think the real answer is, or the answer I'd feel most comfortable with, is that the market mechanism, as we currently understand it, is an incredibly powerful and I think positive way to organize certain swaths of society, but not all of them. And that will continue to be in place long after we're gone. But there's going to be experimenting with new types of institutions, um, just like we've seen over you know, the centuries and millennia. Modern capitalism, as we currently understand it, is less than 400 years old. The, the way we think about capitalism now didn't exist in the 12th or the 4th century. So um, things will change because things always change. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting you talk about organizing society via various systems and and I don't expect you to have an answer to this. I just want to raise this question for the point of discussion. If we've spent all this time trying out various ways of organizing society and the result is wars, poverty, uh, unemployment, and, and all the things that we're dealing with, why have we not found a, a more equitable solution that results for results in, in, a, in a better situation for uh, humanity at large? Well, you've baked a lot of assumptions into that question. You know, yeah. so if, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. If you read um, Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, yeah. he 
he would argue um, based on uh, 15 you know, chapters that his research assistants did a very good job writing uh, of showing that the world has gotten much better. Uh, it has it has, uh, you know, it, it, it was worse. Now it's better. And there will continue to be improvement. There's a certain classic teleology to it. There's sort of this self-perpetuating progress machine in in his narrative. If you contrast that to my favorite author of the last five, seven years, Yuval Harari, uh, with Sapiens and Homodeus as sort of a kind of follow-on volume two to, to, to Sapiens, he offers a very different narrative, saying that, you know, sort of the best of society peaked really at the dawn of the agricultural society or at, at, with with agricultural systems. Um, I mean, all, all of this is, is, is very debatable. Um, no answer is immediately possible. I think where a lot of the debate falls down, both interpersonally and especially politically, is that because we don't necessarily share the same values, uh, which are sort of exogenous to the model. It's sort of you, you feel what you feel, you believe what you believe, and a lot of that is not really changeable. Based on your values, if, if you value something different, um, you're going to have a hard time coming up with a solution uh, with someone across the table who has uh, a, a, a different set of tab- a, a different set of values. And if you think about sort of, you know, classic political ideas or principles like, um, you know, liberty versus, you know, uh, uh, liberty, um, fraternity and equality, you know, classic French Revolution, late 18th century stuff, those three concepts don't go together. Okay, so if you if you give uh, if you give people more liberty engineering a system that also provides equality and we could just leave aside whether that's equality of outcome or equality of opportunity that that that's those are some giant steps that you need to take and you're probably going to fall down when you do so you know there's these i would call them exogenous um ideas because um they're they're really hard uh from a neurological point of view to convince someone who doesn't like the color yellow that they really like the color yellow same thing with these political principles yeah uh, well, let's do this. Let's get into the concepts of the book. And where I want to start is with probably the very first thing that I, that I highlighted. Uh, you said that being rich is having more. And where most of its sojourners think it will, wealth, by contrast, is having funded contentment. It's the ability to underwrite a meaningful life, however we one choose to define that. Uh, first, how, how do you define that in your own life? And why is it that this treadmill of being rich is so appealing to so many people and drives so much of our behavior. Yeah, it's central too. Yeah, it's it, it it's it's a big and important question. I mean, let me just tackle that last part first, and then maybe move backwards to my own you know per, personal take on it. You know, wh- why do we act this way? Um, because we have um, we have evolutionary impulses for growth. So we can think about that um, enjoyment that I know you've written about and spoken to lots of people about this concept of flow and, and finding that deeper sense of joy. Um, that, that's part of our in our in our in our work environment that that that's part of our growth trajectory. And um, absent that, that growth impulse, that impulse to um, uh, improve and at a societal level, the impulse for progress then you wouldn't have seen such uh, really a fa- fantastic um, set of developments across human society over the last you know, 10,000 years or so. 
I mean, we've come a we've come a really long way in terms of what we've been able to accomplish. Um, so, you know, that's just part of who we are. The thing is that more isn't always a, a great quest. It, it might be in terms of certain elements of personal development, but we often use money as a proxy or a talisman for growth that we then put into uh, a very social context immediately. We're, we're social animals by definition. We get uh, we gain deep meaning from our social relationships. But the other side of that coin is that we're constantly comparing ourselves um, to others because we have it. Just sort of feels uncof- uncomfortable that others, whether it be in person or uh, that we see in social media, is, are, are 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 getting ahead of us, and so we end up. Um, we end up feeling envy. You know, there's a, it's not the only study, but one that I just reviewed recently asked the question, if you had the opportunity uh, to make $50,000, uh, but your neighbor made $30,000, would you choose that scenario versus you making $100,000, but your neighbor made $200,000? The, the majority of respondents chose the first scenario. They would make $50,000 a year instead of $100,000 a year, but they would do so making considerably more than their neighbors. Okay, so I think, uh, you know, these are modern surveys. Um, These kind of speak to speak to the context within which we're dealing. Um, The 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 theme of rich versus wealthy in my own personal life was, you know, one of the one of the bigger um, one of the bigger drivers of, of this project, you know, first and foremost, I, I, I write for me because it has to be meaningful or else it's not going to be any good. The times when I feel like I'm writing for others, it just my it's flat. I, I don't feel it, though. There's got to be something um, there's got to be something in it for me. Uh, and, and then I hope that when I share it with others, they really enjoy it. But it's sort of first things first things come first. You know, I've been in finance for close to 20 years, including a pretty long stint, more than a decade in the hedge fund industry. And, you know, during that time, I I met people and have made friends who are worth not only eight figures, not only nine figures, but are billionaires, you know, and and, and relatively young people. And to be able to witness the lifestyle and the choices that people at that level of wealth make, um, I've learned some things. And at the way other end of the spectrum, let's not lose sight of the fact that the average family of four in America lives on about $57,000 a year, and that there are plenty of families and children who go hungry every night in America, which I find pretty infuriating, and has motivated a lot of the charitable um, uh, enterprises that my family and I are uh, involved with. So you've got this very broad spectrum. And so as I sort of think about my own levels of happiness, the right ways in which to raise my children... And then finally, the right ways in which to be a citizen, when I can know somebody who's making very, very little, but also have a friend across town or, you know, across the world who's got five or seven hundred million dollars in the bank and appreciate that the the person with half a billion dollars has good days and bad, bad moods and good moods. Um, And meanwhile, the person who's not living on much can be very cheerful and find great enjoyment in what they're doing on a daily basis and, and find real meaning through a variety of things in life. I felt like it was an obligation to myself and then to my family and then to society to kind of articulate what all of this added up to. And, and that really was the, the impetus, impetus for the book and the first you know, couple chapters of the book kind of frame that, you know, precisely, I think. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, you know, you've mentioned uh, your children a couple of times throughout our conversation, and I realized I wanted to ask you about this earlier. Um, when you talk to them about career specifically and, and education, how do you think about educating your children? And, and what, are, what are the things you're thinking about in terms of career advice? I, I know, you know, they may be younger than they should be thinking about this stuff, but I'm curious what kinds of messages are being passed on to them? It's a really big topic. Um, it's one I think about all the time. Um, you, you can't, again, my kids are 15, 14, and 11, two boys and a girl. And so, you know, there's th three different people, each with their own, um, you know, uh, opportunities and challenges. So you can't be 
hammering them on this stuff all of the time. That said, you know, my wife and I are trying to tee them up for success. The, the problem is that I think there's a pretty good chance that all of them will work in industries in 20 years that currently don't exist. Mm-hmm. And h- how do you raise your children in that context? Um, just as a side note, uh, I run a reading group in Chicago with a with a group of folks that's been a really elevating and, and wonderful experience for me um, on, on, on multiple levels. And, and sort of the subtitle of our reading group is Project 2030, because it's basically mostly a group of dads in their 40s, uh, late 30s into early 50s, who almost everybody has kids. And all of us are sitting there, you know, relatively successful, well-resourced with, and none of us have a good question, uh, answer to the question of, well, what should we be teaching our kids now so that they're going to be successful later? I I guess I I come at the solution at two levels. The the first is that a kind of a a moral one, um, or or maybe I should say that my wife and I, we want to raise our kids to have integrity and, and to be good people. Um, we want them to, um, pursue their, uh, joy, but also to appreciate that they are tied to a social network, not the modern fancy technical kind, but just a broad global social network of others and that they have the opportunity and, and in some cases, the privilege and the opportunity to be helping others. So those are lessons that we try to teach mostly through modeling and less through lectures. I think um, it's better to just show kids and let them observe the right way to act as opposed to just telling them what to do. And then on the skills level, you know, here, I guess I'm talking my own book because it's the way I was educated. But I remain a very big fan of a classic liberal arts education because I think it's one thing to have the skills to answer a complicated question. I think I think it's another skill uh, and arguably a more important one to be able to ask interesting and novel questions. And, you know, there seems to be a growing obsession in, in our society with a vocational education. And by vocational, I mean, you know, very practical. Everyone should be a coder or some form of engineer or, you know, something in in that vein. And, you know, my sense of history uh, going back a couple thousand years and where great innovations come from, it's not from those who are sort of working inside of a process and trying to be sort of marginally creative um, in in that incremental sense, but from those who um, are kind of misfits, who are asking the hard questions, they're willing to be shunned, they're willing to be wrong. I'm certainly not uh, uh, raising, we're not raising our kids to be misfits. But I really want them to be creative uh, and and original thinkers. And I I think a a broad based, I I guess what was classically called a a liberal arts education is the right way for us to go about doing that. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to getting into what you call the four C's, control, connection, context and competence. What are the role of those things um, in wealth? Uh, I guess probably you should also define what those things are in this context. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I define wealth as funded contentment. I define rich as the quest for more, more as a treadmill um, in, in the sense that uh, we become quickly accustomed to all of the things in life we think we want, like fancy vacations and nice cars and big homes and a bigger bank account. Um, there's something in psychology called hedonic adaptation, which um, from a neurological point of view means that, um, you know, that initial change in circumstance feels really good, 
but then you know whatever neurons are firing, they 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 slow down or even stop relatively quickly, within minutes or hours or days, depending on you know what what, what the scenario is. So that's rich when it comes to wealthy as funded contentment. It's the idea that money is an inescapable part of life. You know, I, I've said a lot lately that it's sort of annoying. You can't shake it. I mean, it just comes up every day, whether you're buying a coffee or going to work or figuring out your taxes. It's just sort of one of these, you know, forgetting, you know, for the 10th time, your login ID and password for your bank, you know, one of, you know, five different bank accounts. It's it's really a, a nuisance, but no one's ever been able to, to get around it. Um, it really courses through every element of our lives, not only the trivial ones, but the profound ones. So for me, to, to achieve a deeper sense of wealth, I think, involves you know four fundamental issues. And like you say, I refer to them as the four C's. Uh, the, the first is connection. This idea that we are social animals—it's—it's um, it's not just that we like to hang out with others. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's deeper in the sense that as we've evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, we have found um, sort of our opportunity to grow and progress, but even more deeply, be safe uh, in a dangerous environment comes through being around others. And so genetically, that social connection is incredibly important. Um, the second source of contentment that needs to be underwritten is control. We, we want autonomy, not only over what we do physically, but also over our sense of narrative. And, and narrative has become just a really huge topic in, in, in my life more broadly. Um, if you think about uh, and I, I, I write about this in the book a little bit. Some of the most inspirational stories about people who have been imprisoned um, in, in one terrible situation or another, but still can tell an amazing story about resilience and hope. Um, you know, they are physically imprisoned, but they are still mentally free to tell their own story. And so, you know, very few of us are physically imprisoned, but we have constraints. Uh, all of the time that get in our way. And so that ability to tell your own story is super important. The, the third source of contentment is competence or mastery in some area in, in your job or in, in, in hobbies. And, you know, this is where you can find flow. This is where you can find that deeper sense of fulfillment in your vocation when you really get into something. And for me, that's mostly through writing. You know, there will be times when I'll pick my head up and I realize it's been two hours and I have forgotten to like get up or do anything. I've just been like banging away at the keyboard. Um, those are some of my best moments, some of my favorite moments in life. Um, I feel really, really good. And then the fourth um, dimension is context. Uh, the idea that we want to be tied to something bigger than ourselves. Um, historically, that's been very much about religion and spirituality. That, that's evolved in a variety of ways over time. It's still very prevalent, but it's, it's not like it used to be. Um, uh, but it could also be with our geographic affiliations, you know, sort of nationalism, patriotism, uh, local pride, things like that. It, it could be, you know, feeling like you're living for bigger ideas. You care about the global environment and, and you're really committed to that. And you have the sense that, um, you know, sort of a, uh, a clean and beautiful earth is something that will last for eons beyond when you're going to be around, but that's the right thing to do. So all, all told, and, you know, really based on a lot of reading, 
uh, across philosophy and uh, religion and sociology and other disciplines, as well as just my own personal reflection as being somebody in the world who tries to think about these things. I thought that that was a reasonable taxonomy of the various things that we want to underwrite. You know, the frustrating part is that when it comes to connection or control, competence or, or context, um, they cost money in, in one way or another. Um, in complete poverty, um, those four are, are difficult to achieve. Uh, the question is, wh- what does it mean to afford? What does it mean to afford a meaningful life, and, and then how do you get there? Yeah. Well, one, I appreciate that you brought that up because one of the things that I think I've become hyper aware of is the conversations I have on this show uh, and the things that I write about. I realize they're almost entirely targeted at a group of people who are coming to this from a place of privilege. Um, Uh that people who are struggling to put food on the table or keep the lights on, they can't think about the things that I'm talking about on this show. It's just not a reality, um, for them. And and I've become hyper aware of that. The more that I get exposed to to material like yours and even many of the conversations that I've had. And, and, but can I, can I sort of interject something? Yeah, please. Uh, uh, So you're touching on something really important. Um, and it is a a core reason why I wrote the the book. We, We do have this growing disparity in income and also a growing disparity in opportunity. Um, where, you know, unlike previous generations, those born in the fourth or fifth quintile of income are much more likely to stay there for the rest of their lives uh, versus, um, you know, if you go back a few decades, you, you saw a lot more social mobility. So, you know, just it, it, it tweaks me and it's a source of um, it, it's it's something that I, I care about, not only intellectually, but um, politically and in, in terms of my own values. So part of the book, and it's funny because, you know, I, I really wrote the book for friends and neighbors. You know, I wrote a book, another book about four years ago that was on investment decision making and it was kind of wonky. And I, I thought it was a good book. But, you know, even if you enjoyed it, what would you really do with that? Um, with this one, you know, it's written in a way where hopefully people can pick it up with no background whatsoever in finance, but appreciating that money is a really stressful thing and, and how should you think about these big topics. And, you know, I've had friends who I know um, who, who don't make a lot of money. They, you know, they pick up the book and there's a bit of a nervous laugh and they joke, hey, is this going to teach me how to be rich? Um, and I say, I say, well, I don't know if it'll teach you to be rich, but it could teach you to be wealthy. And it might point out, in fact, that you're already wealthy and that you have things that if understood in the proper context and even better, you know, put within a broader plan to remain wealthy, that you're already in great shape. So I, I do hope to, to, to provide a, a bit of a, 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 an inspiration for just, you know, folks, you know, I think like you and me who, who do currently have uh, a fair amount of privilege. Yeah. So uh, the other question that this raises, you mentioned that you have, you know, friends who are poor, friends who are billionaires. One of the things that I've really wondered about, I was watching uh, something that this guy Jacques Fresco, who's the founder of the Venus Project, was talking about on, on YouTube the other night. And he was saying that he said, look, he said, you cannot argue that environment does not play a role in the circumstances that somebody ends up in. And I I thought more and more about that. I thought, okay, you know what? That's true. My environments have been Indian parents who have very specific values of working hard, getting good grades. My next environment was Berkeley, where I was surrounded by overachievers. And I thought, okay, no question about it. That environment largely shaped who I am and some of the things that I do. What I wonder is, have you talked to people who have 
overcome those environments in a really big way. Have you ever seen somebody, at least in your personal network, go from straight up poverty to extreme wealth? Yeah, and I can't. I mean, I'm not going to obviously name names. Yeah, absolutely. But I, 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 I can. I can think of a number of folks from uh, across my various careers uh, in academia, in investing, now in writing and education, where they didn't grow up with much. They they grew up with with really with nothing, and they've managed to. To, to make a go of it. And those are, those are always great stories because there's almost always something in there that's valuable that can be generalized for, for others. And those do tend to be people, as I've seen, who are much more willing to be tutors, more willing to volunteer. Um, they have a much finer grained sense of, you know, what the game is all about and what it means to, you know, what, what it means to be born without really an, anything to bank on. So the, the the answer is 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 absolutely yes. I mean, I grew up in a reasonably affluent suburb of Pittsburgh, and you know, not Indian family, but Jewish family, mm-hmm. where you know, in Jewish culture, where success was just sort of you know, it's assumed that you would work your ass off to be really good at something and, and make a great living and 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 raise a family and and all that stuff. So you know that was always part of me. I, I really couldn't, in any earnest way, you know, really talk about anything I've struggled with on that level. But I have met plenty of people, including some hedge fund guys who grew up with just nothing, who ended up just making a fortune. That's not to say that they're wealthy in the way that I'm defining it, but they sure they sure are rich. Uh. So there are two other pieces of this that I wanted to talk about, and this kind of takes us into some of the more tactical things, but I, I, I appreciate the fact that we've taken this from really a psychological perspective because I just think it's so fascinating. You said that volatility is the emotional cost of achieving the growth we seek. Now, in my mind, that's about far more than investing in stock markets. Um, how do you develop the capacity to handle that volatility without losing your mind? Yeah. And so, you know, I have have a day job where I spend a lot of time with individual investors and financial advisors, um, really proselytizing the the big theme that the key impediment to our financial success, right, maybe more narrowly investment success, is our own behavior and our own decisions as distinct from having, you know, a fair amount of insight into uh, in, into the market, or, or knowing what the next you know hot stock is going to be, or or, or hot, hot hot sector, you know it's it's really not about beating the market. It's about controlling your own behavior across multiple market cycles. So you know, to the quote that you just read, that you know vo- volatility uh, is an emotional trigger. It's just not the fact that uh, your investments are jumping up and down real quickly, and at times they're going to. They're, they're going to plummet. I mean, you can look at what Bitcoin's done lately. You can look at emerging markets uh, in 2018 um, have uh, dropped very sharply, which is very normal, but still not altogether pleasant. And what I know from my own studies, from other studies, and in my own practical experience as an investor is that when things get noisy, people make really bad decisions. Um, you know, we have these standard phrases like buy low, sell high, invest for the long run. But um, our, our brains are actually wired to do the opposite. So we might have some sense of the future, but when volatility, which is a fancy word for danger, uh, comes around, that time window that we might have in front of us, boom, it just it collapses. 
Okay, so we can we can look into the distance, but now danger is here. Well, we're not worried about the horizon. We're, we're worried about what's happening in, in, in the here and now. Um, there's different ways for people to work on this. And I'd say there's three modes. Um, the first is just pure discipline. So let's say you read my book and you read all of Warren Buffett and you go get an MBA and you get super knowledgeable about behavioral finance and decide that you're going to, um, you're just going to be better. That, you know, when the siren songs come and you're Ulysses and you're just walking around the deck, you're not tied up to anything, they're going to sing that beautiful song and you're just going to, you know, say, hey, that's really nice, but I'm not coming in. Sounds great. Most people, uh, there are some, most people don't have that self-discipline. So there's two other modes. One is to get rid of decisions, which um, never sounds good to give up freedom or liberty or choice, because you know it, it's also part of our part of our DNA in, in terms of loving those things. But the people who automate good financial decisions tend to have much better outcomes. The, the easiest example is just you know your um, paycheck and your 401k, or you know your employer's retirement plan. Yeah. Uh, plenty of great studies, as well as programs uh, designed by Richard Thaler and and other you know gurus in behavioral finance that have changed the you know help companies change the default option for um, uh, for employees. Uh, uh, it it used to be you had to opt into a retirement program. Increasingly, it's now that you have to opt out. So you're not being told what to do. You can be in the retirement program or out of the retirement program. But what they found is that when opt-in is the default, people end up really enjoying that experience a lot more because they don't even have to think about it. The, the third mode is what I'll just call coaching. Um, and um, I've become, in some ways, uh, a very big fan of the financial advice business because um, financial advisors, or at least some, can be great behavioral coaches. Um, we tend to think of stockbrokers or financial advisors as being market mavens, and they're really not. Um, they, they don't know more about the stock market or the yield curve or any of that noise more, more than the next guy. But what the good ones will do is get to know you and your family and understand what your hot buttons are and when volatility does come. When you feel danger, when you can no longer look at the horizon and time collapses and you're looking at the here and now, they're the ones who can be the calm voice in the room who doesn't have nearly the emotional stake that you have in the conversation with your husband or wife or with your parents or your children and say, this is the right thing to do in this moment. So between discipline and um, uh, uh, outsourcing uh, uh, discretion and coaching, those to me are the three buckets that I think people should think about in terms of my current writing and, and lecturing. You know, th those are sort of the three ways I I'm thinking about solving some really big problems with um, the current American investment environment. Well, I, I want to bring us full circle uh, with another quote from the book. You said, more is a deeply wired evolutionary instinct for survival. Humans have not only survived, but dominated all other species in part because of our aspirational nature. We survive not just by ending off dangers, but by seizing opportunity. Enough deeply unimportant and the wellspring of reflective happiness can be uncomfortable because it felt like we're shutting down an important part of ourselves, which we are. Uh, Interesting way to end a book about wealth. Uh, 
one, I happen to agree, but I, I think the thing that I question or, or the question that raises my mind is, is there a point at which this desire for more actually gets satiated? Well, the short answer to that is no. Um, that, that's the treadmill, you know, sprint however fast you want on the treadmill. You're not, you're really not going any further. You know, as we mentioned earlier, there are elements of more in terms of our urge for growth and that evolutionary instinct for growth where, you know, more can be a really good thing. Uh, but it's not going to go anywhere where I kind of wrapped up the book and, I don't know if you've had this experience with your writing, which is you, you, you don't even really know what you're talking about until you're well into the project. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, what, what, what the hell have I been writing about for like the last year and a half? This is what I'm writing about. Yeah, it dawned on me really, you know, in terms of my publisher's deadline looming, it, it dawned on me with about two months to go that what I was really writing about on some level was this um, this dichotomy between more and enough. And, uh, and I just d described it in the book as, as a, you know, relatively sloppy way to end up, um, you know, what's supposed to be a pretty practical take on money. I, I want to completely, I went 180 degree different, um, uh, direction. I, I decided to make it sort of a m messy, uh, philosophical meditation about some of these uh, deeper issues. But, um, you know, more is the instinct that, is part of us. We're always going to want that. But enough is also an instinct. And, you know, enough sounds great. You know, you can read Stoics, you can read um, Buddhists, you can read lots of different philosophers and, uh, and, and, and religious figures talking about, you know, the power of now being happy with what you have. What I've come to accept is that they're both right. You know, we want to be stronger, better, faster, and we also want to be we also want to appreciate the, the power of now. I, I don't think they can be reconciled. Um, but what I do think is that we can think about them in more or less constructive ways so that we can find a rhythm in our day to day lives in our own heads and in our relationship, to, uh, not only at home or or at work. You know, I kind of came to grips by the end of this this journey, this book, that um, I was kind of really struggling with a bunch of different related dichotomies. I mean, one is more versus enough, uh, which is pretty pretty he heavy lifting. Uh, another is now versus later. Um, you know, one of the really distinctive elements of being a human being is that we have a unique capacity to think through time. Okay, so our ability to engage in prospection and, and retrospection isn't really like what most other animals on the planet can do. And that's been a source of great uh, success for us. Um, so, you know, but with every good thing comes a little bit of the bad. The, 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 the bad is that our minds can wander um, through time in a lot of different ways. And one of the more interesting uh, areas of research in social science and neuroscience currently is thinking about or trying to articulate the relationship between the current self and the future self. And really how, in some ways, the wealth management process, which really is not about picking stocks or bonds or building portfolios, it's about how do you, in a healthy and disciplined way, connect the current you to the version of you that you want to be in a year or 10 years or or 50 years. One of the biggest problems with the setting of goals is that most of us actually don't know what we want until we sort of stumble across it. 
And so when you know we can we can boil things down to a checklist of financial goals and financial plans. The the problem is that you know we're time travelers, and as we zip and back and forth through time, you know we're sampling from memory, we're projecting from memory into the future to create a certain form of imagination. That that's all that's all happening on a relatively subconscious level, but it very much relates not only to the day to day happiness or sadness we feel. It also relates to kind of that deeper source of contentment that I talk about um, uh, under that umbrella of, of wealthy. So more versus enough, uh, now versus later. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, I mentioned briefly in the book, has a, has a story he tells about um, floating versus swimming. It's actually the same thing in that, you know, he talks about, well, in life, do you want to swim toward a goal or do you want to float in the here and now and enjoy? You, you can't both dog paddle and swim the breaststroke at the same time you have to choose but at the same time you wouldn't want to forsake both enjoying the moment but also moving toward a goal um not reconcilable in my view if, if you have a different take i'd love it because i'm trying to figure this out on multiple levels especially <laughs> personally um but i think this more versus enough dichotomy um and the fact that we are really mental time travelers in who we want to become is uh, seats at the sits at the deepest core of what it means to be wealthy. Wow. Uh, no, I don't have another perspective. I'm not going to touch it. That was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners, because this has been really phenomenal. It's one of those conversations that is making my brain hurt in a really good way. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, your books and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, sure. So I'm really active on, on Twitter, where there's a bunch of people into uh, behavioral finance like me writing about these things. So I'm at Brian Portnoy. Uh, I am the director of investment education for an asset management firm called Virtus, V-I-R-T-U-S. And so a lot of the think pieces uh, and other materials that uh, we've produced for investors is at Virtus.com. And then finally, I have a personal website called Shaping Wealth. Dot com, and that just has a little bit on me and the two books that I've published and a couple other nuggets. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.